0: Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Friday, January 20th, 2023. Abortion opponents gathering for the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. to talk about their movement's agenda. As this is the first march since the Supreme Court reversed the Roe v. Wade decision that had legalized abortion. We'll hear from some of the rally speakers and talk with a roll call healthcare reporter. Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia announcing he will run for re-election in 2024. It was a closely watched decision since Senator Kaine is a Democrat and the last statewide Virginia races were won by Republicans. President Joe Biden marking his two-year anniversary as president, telling a roomful of U.S. city mayors at the White House, with your help, we've gotten a lot done. The International Monetary Fund Managing Director, speaking to the World Economic Forum, saying... The global economic situation is less bad than we feared a couple of months ago. But that does not mean good. And no decision yet from Germany on supplying Ukraine with its modern battle tanks in the war with Russia. We'll hear from the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who's meeting in Germany with other defense ministers of all the countries supporting Ukraine. And we begin with abortion opponents rallying on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. for the 50th annual March for Life, the first such rally since the Supreme Court last June in the Dobbs decision overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that had made abortion a constitutional right. Annual March for Life has taken place to mark the Roe v. Wade decision. Jeannie Mancini, March for Life Education and Defense Fund president, opening today's march by explaining why, with Roe v. Wade no longer the law of the land, The marches will continue.
1: 2023 March for Life theme is next steps, marching into a post-Roe America. Leading up to today, we were asked frequently, will we still march? Let me ask you all, what do you think about that question? Should we still march? I'm sorry, I didn't hear some of you in the back. Let me ask you again, should we still march? Yeah. Friends, over the course of the past 50 years, the March for Life has become the largest human rights demonstration worldwide, and while the march began as a response to Roe, we don't end as a response to Roe being overturned. Why? Because we're not yet done. Let me say that again. We are not yet done. While this this year marks our most significant victory, the human rights abuse of abortion is far from over. Sadly, this year alone in the United States, there will be well over 700,000 abortions. And we know that in every abortion, one life is taken, and at least one life is wounded. And so we will continue to march. We will continue to march until the human rights abuse of abortion is a thing of the past. We will march until abortion is unthinkable.
0: Jeannie Mancini, March for Life, Education and Defense Fund president at today's rally on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. Several members of Congress also there, including the House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Republican from Louisiana, who talked about what he sees as the federal role in regulating abortion. Now, that the Supreme Court has done away with the constitutional right.
2: This has been a battle for decades in the United States. And the left will have you believe that all young people are just here to support the abortion industry. You are showing us and giving us hope that the young people of America support life, defend life, are here to march for life. Because because when you're in a battle, it's important to keep your focus on what the mission is but every step of the way, it's also critical that we celebrate victories along the way, and boy, did we get a huge victory just a few months ago when Roe was overturned. But as you all know, that's only the end of the first phase of this battle. The next phase now begins, and that's what this year's march is all about, the next steps in a post-Roe era. And we in Congress, and how about my colleagues here, Chris Smith, all my colleagues behind me. Who defend life? Just think about this. Just a few months ago, when Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House. I'm not sure if she accepted the invitation to come speak. We brought a bill, what's Ann Wagner's bill, called the Born Alive Act, a bill that says if a baby is born alive outside the womb, you cannot murder that baby and call it abortion. Do you know? And why do you march? Why do you get involved in elections? Why do you support people who are pro-life? Eighty different times, 80 different times Nancy Pelosi blocked that bill from coming to the floor. The story actually gets better. In just eight days of a Republican majority, we brought up that bill and passed it through the House of Representatives what difference elections make it's why you get
0: involved congressman steve scalise republican from louisiana the house majority leader Cynthia raman health care reporter with roll call has been covering today's march for life and what the abortion debate might look like in a post roe v wade world she joins us now by phone thank you so much you were at the the march today what was the feeling there perhaps compared to previous marches
3: I think this is a really interesting march because, you know, we are at the first March for Life after the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade last year. So there's just a a different vibe this year. A lot of, um, you know, we had some federal lawmakers, we had activists um, from across the country really talking about the next steps and how overturning Roe was the first step in a multi-step plan of, of things that they want to do next in this kind of movement.
0: Is there any disagreement within the movement about how to proceed?
3: There is, and I think that something that's pretty interesting, even though this is something that we've been building up for years, both sides have has been pretty frank that they felt like this was going to happen. It was just a matter of when rather than if. Um, and then on the Republican side, there is a little bit of you know, disagreement on terms of whether this should be addressed at the federal level, whether it should be done at the state level, who, um, what kind of different uh, restrictions or, or limits that, that should be taken, um, whereas before there was a lot more uniformity in terms of what was kind of wanted as the, the main goal, which was to overturn Roe, and now that we are in that stage, there's a lot more fragmentation where even if everyone has the same sort of end goal, um, there has been a little bit of um, people saying that there are different priorities that should be taken.
0: What are the lessons from the 2022 midterm elections for the anti-abortion side?
3: So that's another area of fragmentation where, you know, you have some parts of the Republicans and conservatives that said, hey, this has not been a a winning message for us. Maybe we should not focus as much as this uh, post the election, given that, you know, there were five ballot initiatives in states last year related to abortion and all of them went in favor of abortion rights. Um, and then there have been you know, campaigns that focused more on abortion or uh, Democrats really capitalized on using abortion rights as a way to kind of pick up seats and, and really focus on this issue. So we've even seen in the last uh, few weeks and, and last year a lot of fragmentation here. If we looked at last week, the House held a couple votes on um, anti-abortion measures. And even though all of the Republicans did vote for the measures, there was some um, fragmentation with lawmakers like Representative Nancy May saying that this was a big issue for voters and she uh, wanted to focus on some other topics um, as the House kind of had been, things like contraception and, and other issues that are important to her district.
0: We're talking with Sandia Rahman, a reporter with Roll Call. The national March for Life has been a a focus for now 50 years. How important going forward will the the Washington rally be versus perhaps state and local marches?
3: I think we can look to one of the big changes that was this year. In previous years, uh, advocates have marched towards the Supreme Court uh, to signify that they wanted the Supreme Court to act. But this year, um, and I presume in following years, they marched towards the Capitol. Um, hoping to signify that, you know, the next steps they want to be taken are in Congress um, as well as in state legislatures. So I think that, you know, for folks that are really passionate about this issue, the federal level is still going to be important. You know, the the president, um, Congress all have power over different things related to abortion and, and everything in that reproductive health spectrum. So I think that it will still be a big issue. Um, kind of messaging point to have the, the national rally. So there are a lot more state-led initiatives happening over the next few days for um, different states that are really trying to push changes on the state level.
0: And finally, uh, six months after the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, what does the abortion map look like in the U.S.?
3: So it, one of the tricky things about it, as someone who's been covering this issue for several years, is it, it, it's constantly changing. Uh, we have states where abortion might be severely restricted, but many of these laws are in the midst of litigation. So sometimes the there's a back and forth where it might be restricted today and not restricted tomorrow and then restricted again the next day. Um, but a large, uh, there are large spots of the country where access is pretty restricted, especially in southern states. Um a lot of parts of the Midwest and even in states that do uh, not have as strong limits on abortion, abortion rights activists have mentioned that there are a lot of things that can be done to expand access. So the map is constantly changing and will continue changing, um, especially with litigation and states heading into their legislatures.
0: Zendia Rahman is a healthcare reporter for Roll Call Finder Stories at RollCall.com. Thank you very much. Thank you. And C-SPAN cameras covered today's March for Life. We have the video at our website, cSPAN.org. President Joe Biden issuing a proclamation on the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which protected abortion rights nationwide until it was overturned by the Dobbs decision last year. The proclamation reads, the court got Roe right 50 years ago. It was a balanced decision with broad national consensus that the majority of Americans have continued to support for the last 50 years and it was a constitutional principle upheld by justices appointed by democratic and republican presidents alike i continue to call on the congress to pass legislation to make those protections the law of the land once and for all until then i will continue to use my executive authority to protect women and families from harm in the wake of the dobbs decision part of the proclamation from president biden vice president kamala harris plans to give a speech on abortion rights in tallahassee florida on sunday the actual 50th anniversary date of the Roe v. Wade decision. More on this from today's White House briefing with the Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Can you
1: talk a little bit about what, what message the White House is trying to send on Sunday by having the vice president uh, deliver a speech on abortion rights in the state of Florida and specifically in the state capital of Tallahassee. So
4: as you know, the Florida is a is an important state as we're talking about fighting for women's health care uh, for a few reasons. And let me just run through them. Florida has an abortion ban, which is uh, which is on the books. So that's number one. In the thir- it is the third largest uh, state in the country, as you all know, and is surrounded by several states, several states around uh, its border with even more restrictive abortion laws and those, uh, b- excuse me, bans which are in place as well. And because Florida's ban is less stringent than in the neighboring states, the state has increasingly become a place where women can go to uh, to access uh, care there. Uh, yet, right now, the state is considering an even more extreme ban on the books, which would be devastating, not just for uh, Florida women, but if you think about, again, the southern region, if you think about the states uh, that Florida borders. And so, it is important in this moment that we are currently in. And also, uh, it was the first state that the vice president visit- visited after the devastating situation uh, that, we, that we received uh, just, uh, you know, a couple months ago. Uh, and so... Again, you know, this is uh, this is something that, uh, after the Dobbs decision, so it's, we felt, she felt, uh, it would be a good state uh, for the 50th anniversary, which would have been the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade.
0: White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with reporters in the White House briefing room. Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat from Virginia, making an announcement today that he's going to run for re-election in 2024. Associated Press writing that this comes after Senator Kaine raised speculation about an impending retirement when he told the Richmond Times Dispatch earlier this month that he had not yet decided whether to seek a third term. And also from this article, his plans to run will likely ease Democratic worries about holding onto the seat in a state now led by Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin. Senator Kane spoke to reporters in Richmond, Virginia.
5: I have been really grappling with what to do uh, with respect to my time in the Senate. And I'm very happy to announce that I'm going to run for a third term in the Senate. Um, It's it's an unusual decision, and as Ann and I worked through it really mostly since the midterms, she pointed out one of the reasons it's hard is it's an eight-year decision. Most of the decisions you make in your life, they're not eight-year decisions. They're like for next year or for next week. I make decisions about tomorrow sometimes, but a Senate term is two years of campaigning and then six years of serving, and uh, you got to really approach it carefully. Here's why in conversations with friends, and especially with Ann and my family, I've decided to run for a third term. I'm a servant. I love Virginia. I'm proud of what I've done.
6: i got a whole lot more I want to do.
0: Senator Tim Kaine at a news conference in Richmond, Virginia. He was also the 2016 Democratic vice presidential nominee running with the presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. Washington Post reports Senator Kane will be seeking re-election under a decidedly different environment than his last race. When a Democrat was in the executive mansion and his opponent, Corey Stewart, turned off moderate Virginians with hard right positions and staunch support for Confederate statues, Senator Kane won by 16 points. He won by six in 2012 against former Virginia Governor and Senator George Allen. That reporting from Washington Post. Today, President Biden welcoming city mayors from across the United States, both Democrats and Republicans. They're in Washington for the U.S. Conference of Mayors winter meeting. Today is also the second anniversary of President Biden taking office. After he gave a speech touting what he sees as the accomplishments of his administration the past couple of years, he took a few questions from the mayors.
4: We'll start with uh, Mayor Tashara Jones from St. Louis, Missouri. Good afternoon, Mr. President.
7: Mayor,
6: how are you?
4: Great, great. Thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Chips and Science Act, we're seeing jobs return to our cities and we're preparing our citizens for the many opportunities to come. What can we as mayors do to help you further your agenda of shoring up our national security and bring more high-quality jobs to America's cities?
6: I think two things. One... Be realistic and don't confuse the national debt with, with debt reduction on a yearly basis. The debt we're paying on, and we're going to have a little discussion about that with the, with the uh, new majority leader of the House, has accumulated over 200 years. Over 200 years. Not a joke. That's how long that's what. that's what the national debt is. It's over, you know, $31 trillion but it's over 200 years and one quarter of that debt, one quarter of that debt was accumulated in the four years of my predecessor, one quarter of it. So what we've actually done Mayor, we've actually cut the deficit on a yearly basis in the first year because of what you Now I'm not being solicited because we all did $350 billion. And last year, this year, we cut that deficit on a yearly basis by over a trillion dollars. So it's over a trillion, roughly $400 billion we've cut the deficit, the yearly deficit, year to year. We've got to focus on making sure we do not accumulate more debt on the historic 200 years and gradually continue to reduce it. One of the things that we've done is the, the budget we're going to be introducing, you're all going to see, is expected to reduce the debt another trillion dollars this next year. By spending more, Spending less than we than, than we than we spending less than we bring in. Now the big debate, I'll be honest with you, and I'm going to talk about in the State of the Union, is a fundamental disagreement on what we should do to cut what what do we cut? Well it's not just cutting. What do you raise? What taxes do people pay? How do they pay their taxes? And do they pay it fairly? And so one of the things that's going to be a big issue in dealing with the national debt that could, if we don't meet our national debt and renege on the first time, we have a calamity that exceeds anything that's ever happened financially in the United States. And so one of the things that we're going to do is it's going to get down to a decision of whether, do we, in fact, make sure that folks, uh, do we cut Social Security to raise taxes on trillionaires? I mean, billionaires. There's 745 or 50 billionaires in America. Average tax rate they pay is two percent. I think you should be able to be a billionaire, but I think you should pay a little more than two percent.
0: President Biden at the White House, part of his meeting today with mayors from around the country in Washington for their winter meeting, the U.S. Conference of Mayors. <clears throat> Wall Street today, the Dow up 330, Nasdaq up two hundred and eighty eight, and S&P up 73. An article from CNBC, the global economic outlook is not as bad as feared a couple of months ago, but less bad doesn't quite mean good, according to the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. Kristalina Georgieva told a closing panel at the World Economic Forum in Davos, was moderated by CNBC, they note, we have to be cautious. She said headline inflation was heading down and China's reopening was expected to boost global growth with the IMF forecasting the economy will outpace global growth growth by 2.7 percent this year at 4.4 percent after slipping below it for the first time in four decades last year. Here is some of her remarks.
7: It is less bad than we feared a couple of months ago. Uh, But less bad doesn't quite yet mean good. Let me start from what has improved and why we have to be cautious What has improved is inflation seems to have started leading in the right direction, in other words, down. Headline inflation uh, in particular. What has improved is the prospect for China to boost growth. Let's remember last year, 22, China registered for the first time in 40 years lower growth rate than the global average. Never happened in four decades. Now, with the reopening of China, we expect growth this year to again exceed global average. We project 2.7% for the world. This may be uh, corrected uh, somewhat in a couple of days. For China, we project 4.4%. And also what has Uh, changed uh, in the uh, positive, is that we have seen demonstrably strength of labour markets translating into consumers' spending and keeping the economy up. Why we should be cautious? Well, first, uh, 2.7, if this is the growth we achieve, by far, is not fabulous. This is the third lowest growth rate uh, in the last uh, uh, decades uh, after the um, global financial crisis and COVID. It's not great. Second, we don't know quite yet how inflation would march downwards. What if the good news of China growing faster translates into oil and gas prices jumping up, putting pressure on inflation. And three, the horrible war in Ukraine is a risk for primarily the people of Ukraine, but it is also a tremendous risk for confidence, especially in Europe. So, conclusion... Be uh, careful not to get on the other side of the spectrum from being too pessimistic to being too optimistic. Stay in the middle of realism that seems to serve the world well.
0: Kristalina Georgieva, Managing Director of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, today. She called on forum attendees to fight what she called global economic fragmentation. She says that supply chains that are diversified and strengthened collaboratively and rationally, as she says, may cost the global GDP 0.2%. But if the world acts like, quote, an elephant in a China shop and we trash the trade that has been an engine for growth for so many decades, she says the cost could be up to 7% of GDP. $7 trillion. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. ABC News headline, President Biden breaks silence on his handling of classified documents. The accompanying article says the president answered a question Thursday from a reporter, despite repeated questions to him all week on the topic. Of course, this concerns the classified documents found at his home in Delaware and a former office in Washington, D.C. that matter now under investigation by a Justice Department special counsel. The question to the president Thursday in California was whether he regrets not telling the American people about some of the documents being discovered as they were discovered before the November midterm elections.
6: As we found... uh We found a handful of documents were failed, uh, were filed in the wrong place. We immediately turned them over to the archives and the Justice Department. We're fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. Thank you.
0: President Biden, Thursday in California, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre asked follow-up questions today.
4: What does the president mean when he said no regrets? Because he's also said he takes very seriously the handling of uh, classified documents, so I'm unclear what he means about no regrets. I'm not going to uh, comment further from what the President has said uh, yesterday. I think he uh, he laid out his thoughts. He was asked about it. He laid out his thoughts of whatever question he was asked. I'm not going to get I'm not going to get into specifics or I'm not going to uh, go beyond what the President has said. But I will reiterate from here, uh that uh and basically what he said to 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 all of you many times at this point that he does indeed take classified information and seriously he does indeed take classified documents seriously i'm just not going to go beyond that i would refer you to the white house counsel's office for any specifics on on um on on the president's comments or what how the process is moving forward you just shed light on on, was he referring to sort of the rollout of the information or about the timeline or I'm just unclear about what he's not regretting. And and, and Kelly-O, I totally understand the question. I totally understand why you may want clarity here, but I'm going to be prudent. I'm going to be consistent here. I'm not going to comment on on the ongoing uh, process, the legal process from here. Uh, I will just let the president's words stand for itself.
0: The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with reporters in the White House briefing room. Congress is not in session this week, but many members of Congress go to the cable TV shows talking about the issues of the day. A new member, Wesley Hunt, Republican from Texas, was on Fox News Thursday.
8: I'm really looking forward uh, to working with Congressman Jordan in the not-so-distant future to get to the answers that the American people want to see. And what we've seen from Joe Biden over the course of the past few years is a derelict duty and his handling his handling of classified inf- information, but we didn't start this fire. The Democrats did. When they raided President Trump's home, and we all saw the images of the FBI sitting in front of his home, they are the ones that started this. My dad used to always tell me, it's all good and fun till the rabbit got the gun. And now that we are in charge of judiciary, I can assure you that we're going to get to the answers that the American people want for the mishandling of the classified information that we have seen from President Joe Biden.
1: When is that going to happen?
8: Hopefully as soon as possible. I believe we start meetings next week. I'm flying back to D.C. on Monday. And I could tell you that we are very excited to get to the bottom of what's happening at the border, what's happening with Hunter Biden, and what's happening with the, with the uh, handling of this classified uh, documents from, from our current president.
0: Congressman Wesley Hunt, Republican from Texas, on Fox News on Thursday. Washington Post has a story today. The Justice Department on Friday responded to the Republican-led House Judiciary Committee's sweeping inquiry into the agency, marking the department's first correspondence with Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, in his new role as chair of the panel. The letter sent by the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legislative Affairs Attempts to strike a cooperative posture in response to Congressman Jordan's January 17th request covering a range of topics. But the initial correspondence marks the first back and forth in what has historically devolved into a fraught tête-à-tête between Congress and the Justice Department. That reporting from The Washington Post. Now to Ukraine. This from AP. Defense leaders meeting at a U.S. Air base in Germany on Friday failed to resolve divisions over providing advanced battle tanks to Ukraine After more than five hours of discussions about sending more military aid to the embattled country in its war with Russia, the Defense Minister of Poland, which has pledged a company of 14 Leopard tanks on condition that other countries also supply them, said 15 countries that have the German-made Leopards discussed the issue, but no decisions were made. The AP article has this. Germany would need to consent for the tanks to be given to Ukraine, which is not a member of NATO. During a portion of the open meeting to the press the ukrainian president volodymyr zelensky spoke by video link pleading for more weapons including the tanks without delay
9: the war started by russia does not allow delays and i and i can thank you hundreds of times and it will be absolutely just and fair given all that we have already done but but hundreds of thank you are not hundreds of tanks All of us can use thousands of wars in discussions, but I cannot put wars instead of guns that are needed against Russian artillery, or instead of of the anti-aircraft missile that are needed to protect people from Russian airstrikes. And I am truly grateful to all of you for the weapons you have provided. Every unit helps to save our people from terror, but time. Time remains a Russian weapon. We have to speed up. Time must become our common weapon, just like air defense and artillery, armed vehicles and tanks, which we are negotiating about with you and which actually will make the victory.
0: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky speaking remotely to the meeting in Germany of the Ukrainian Defense Contact Group, the 50 or so countries that have been aiding Ukraine. After the meeting, the closed portion, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and General Mark Milley, chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, held a news conference. Secretary Austin asked about Germany and the tanks.
6: Next
5: question will go to Idris Ali, Reuters.
8: Uh, Mr. Secretary, over the past week, a number of European countries have publicly pleaded with Germany to allow the transfer of their tanks you with your German counterpart. Yesterday, and like you said today, they still have not made a decision. Are you um, disappointed in the German position? And how can Germany still be seen as a reliable ally, given what is widely perceived as them dragging their feet on something so simple?
10: Um, uh, Thanks Idris. Uh, First, let me say that uh, this isn't really about one single platform. Uh, and so our, our goal, and I think we've been fairly successful at doing this and bringing together capability, is to, is to provide the capability that Ukraine needs to be successful in, in the near term. And so you've heard us talk about uh, two battalions of uh, Bradley uh, infantry fighting vehicles, very capable platform. Um, three battalions or a brigade's worth of uh, strikers, uh, so you add that up, that's, that's two brigades of combat power that the U.S. is providing, along with enablers and other things. So you look at uh, Sweden providing uh, a battalion of CV-90s, that's an armored personnel carrier. Uh, the Germans are providing martyrs. Uh, the, uh, uh, the Poles are providing uh, a battalion's worth of uh, mechanized capability. Uh, you heard the chairman highlight uh, four battalions of, uh, of uh, artillery, uh, mechanized artillery that's being provided. So, this is, a, this is a very, very capable package, and they, you know, if, if, uh, if employed properly, uh, it, will be, it will enable them to be successful. Now, we're going to ensure that we're doing everything uh, necessary uh, to ensure that they have the ability to employ it properly. Uh, you heard us talk about training, additional training that we're going to do. This is something that we haven't been able to do in the past. So, you know, as we speak, you know, troops are being linked up with uh, Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicles, uh, and they'll train for weeks, uh, not only on just how to operate the vehicles, but also uh, on how to properly uh, set conditions for maneuver, and then maneuver. And then, you know, how to exploit uh, opportunities, how to breach obstacles. Uh, So I I think this will be a really, really uh, capable uh, package that we put together. And I, I really do believe that uh, it will enable the Ukrainians to be successful going forward. So this is not dependent upon uh, a single platform. Uh, this is uh, this is a, a combined arms effort that we brought together that I, I, I truly believe is going to provide them the best opportunity for success.
0: Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at a news conference at Ramstein Air Base in Germany. More from the Associated Press article on today's U- Ukraine Defense Contact Group meeting, the U.S. has resisted providing its own M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine, citing extensive and complex maintenance and logistical challenges with the high-tech vehicle. General Mark Milley, chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, also at this news conference in Germany, was asked whether now is the time to start negotiating a settlement between Ukraine and Russia, as General Milley has said in the past, that all wars will end eventually with a negotiated settlement.
5: Um, President Biden, uh, President Zelensky, and most of the leaders of Europe have said uh, that this war is likely to end uh, in a negotiation. And and from a military standpoint, this is a very, very difficult fight. Uh, this fight uh, stretches... Uh, All the way from right now as the front line goes from all the way from Kharkiv down to Kyrgyzstan and there's significant fighting ongoing uh, and it's more or less a static front line right this minute uh, with the exception of Bakhmut and Soledad with a significant uh, offensive action going on really from both sides the distance that for the United States that's about from uh, I guess Washington D.C. to Atlanta Uh, so that is a significant amount of territory and in that territory uh, are still remaining a lot of Russian forces in Russian-occupied Ukraine, so from a military standpoint, I still maintain that for this year it would be very, very difficult to militarily eject the Russian forces from all every inch of Ukrainian occupied or uh, Russian-occupied Ukraine. Uh, that doesn't mean it can't happen; doesn't mean it won't happen, but it'd be very, very difficult. I think what can happen is a is a uh, continued. Uh, defense uh, stabilizing the front. I think it's possible to to clearly do that, and I think it's uh, depending on uh, the delivery and training of all of this equipment. I do think it's very very possible to for the Ukrainians to run a significant uh, tactical or or op- even operational level offensive operation to liberate as much Ukrainian territory as possible. And then we'll then we'll see where it goes. But I do think at the end of the day, this war, like many wars in the past, will end at some sort of negotiating table. And that'll be determined in terms of timing by the leaders of both countries, uh, both, both uh, Russia and, and Ukraine. Uh, President Putin could end this war today. It, it's, he started it. It's his war of choice. And he could end it today uh, because it's turning into an absolute catastrophe for Russia. Uh, massive amounts of casualties, lots of other damage uh, to, the, to the Russian military, etc. cetera. Uh, so he should and could end this war right now, right today.
0: General Mark Milley chairs the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a joint news conference with the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in Germany today. A CNN article has this The U.S. Treasury Department will designate the Russian mercenary organization Wagner Group as a transnational criminal organization and will impose additional sanctions. Next week against the group and its support network across the world, the White House said on Friday. Along with the new sanctions, the U.S. has released newly declassified photos of Russian rail cars traveling from Russia to North Korea and back in November. And what the U.S. believes was the initial delivery of infantry rockets and missiles for use by the Wagner Group in Ukraine. That from CNN. John Kirby is the National Security Council. Coordinator for Strategic Communications. He was in the White House briefing room today.
11: Today, we are announcing additional actions that we are taking to help Ukraine defend itself against Russian and Wagner forces. First, the Department of Treasury will be designating Wagner as a significant transnational criminal organization under Executive Order 13581 as amended. In coordination with this designation, we will also impose additional sanctions next week against Wagner and its support network across multiple continents. These actions recognize the transcontinental threat that Wagner poses, including through its ongoing pattern of serious criminal activity. With these actions, and there'll be more to come, our message to any company that is considering providing support to Wagner is simply this. Wagner is a criminal organization that is continuing wide, I'm sorry, committing widespread atrocities and human rights abuses and we will work relentlessly to identify, disrupt, expose, and target those who are assisting Wagner. Second, as we have stated previously, the arms transfers from the DPRK are in direct violation of United Nations Security Council resolutions. So today, we shared information on these violations with the Security Council's DPRK Sanctions Committee panel of experts. We will continue to raise these violations at the Security Council alongside our allies and partners and third of course and i think you saw secretary austin and chairman milley and, and ramstein uh, today uh, at the eighth iteration of the ukraine defense contact group we are continuing to provide ukraine with the weapons and equipment that it needs to defend itself so and you saw today the significant new package of security assistance which included fi- more than 500 armored vehicles including bradley's striker combat vehicles mine resistant ambush protected vehicles otherwise known as MRAPs and of Humvees, all in addition to the armored vehicles that we have already announced. This package also contains critical additional air defense capabilities, including both more air defense systems and more surface-to-air missiles, as well as more ammunition for the artillery systems and the HIMARS, the advanced rocket systems, that the U.S. has already previously uh, provided uh, to Ukraine.
0: John Kirby is a spokesperson for the National Security Council today in the White House briefing room. On the Wagner Group, he said that U.S. intelligence estimates that the group has at least 50,000 personnel in Ukraine, most of them recruited from Russian prisons. And on the U.S. aid to Ukraine, that latest $2.5 billion package that he announced, it brings total U.S. security aid to Ukraine since the war began nearly a year ago to almost $27 billion. John Kirby also asked today about the U.S. Coast Guard's announcement this week that it is monitoring a Russian ship near Hawaii believed to be gathering intelligence. Pentagon put out a statement. U.S. Indo-Pacific Command is monitoring the Russian vessels operating in international waters in the Western Pacific as Russia operates within the region. It's expected to do so in accordance with international law. Here's the question today to John Kirby
11: the coast guard yesterday off hawaii said that they were they were keeping track of a russian sort of spy ship intelligence gathering yeah. ship at what point does that concern you a point is that so unusual that we need to figure out exactly what they're doing it's not unusual uh i mean it, obviously we're, we're mindful of it and we're going to continue to monitor i think you saw uh, uh, our commanders out in the pacific talk about that we'll, we'll obviously monitor that but um, it is not uh, completely atypical behavior uh, for the Russians. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we see it, we talked about it, we know they're there, I think tells you that we obviously we take it seriously.
10: Seriously, but not concerned. I, I didn't say that
11: at all. I mean, of course we take it seriously. I mean, uh, w- we understand that the Russians are going to try to collect his, an, intelligence through a variety of different means. That's not new. What I'm saying is it's, it's not a completely new phenomenon. It's not something we haven't seen before. And we know how to, we know how to treat it. We know how to deal with
0: it. John Kirby, National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications today in the White House briefing room. Thanks for listening to Washington today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night and weekend.